0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org.
1: Our uh, Scriptures come from several passages today, the first one being Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Our second reading comes from Jonah chapter one, verses one through three. Now Jonah 3, verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 2. When God saw what they, had, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said that He would do to them. And He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country?' This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And finally, Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who hears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is a word of the Lord.
0: So Shades, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's right, not Judges, Genesis. We're taking a break from our Judges series for the season of Advent. We're going to walk through an Advent series simply entitled Advent for All. As you heard earlier when we were lighting the wreath, the word Advent simply means coming. The season gets that name because it's a season about how God's people longed for the coming of Christ. And so what we do in this season is we set aside four Sundays before Christmas gets here in order to remember the 400 years between the last Old Testament prophet Malachi and the birth of Christ. 400 years in which the people of God waited longing for all of the promises of the prophets to be fulfilled. And so what we do during these four weeks is we look back on those 400 years because in those 400 years, in the longing of the people of God, we hear an echo of our own longings. We we are a people who are longing for the advent of Christ, his second advent. We, We are longing for him to come again and to bring to completion what his first advent began. And if I'm honest... If I'm honest, Shades, I personally typically spend this season reflecting on what all of that means for me. Like personally, I I spend this season usually reflecting on my longings, how I experience the brokenness of the world, my, my pains, my needs, and what it will mean for God to fulfill all of his promises for me. And here's the deal. Those aren't wrong things to reflect on. They're just incomplete. Because Advent isn't just for me. Advent is for all. That theme, Shades, lies at the heart of this season. And we just sang about in our opening song, we sang about how Christ's birth was announced by angels. That announcement was peace to all who would receive him. We sing songs like joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let let earth, everybody, receive her king. Christ came for all. This theme is at the heart of this season, Advent for all. So, this Advent, I want us to spend some time together reflecting on that reality. And I want us to do it in a very specific way. I want us to reflect on the intersection of Advent and racism. If Advent is for all, if the gospel is for all, then what happens when the gospel and racism collide? How, another way to say it is, how should Advent affect? racism. This, should, this connection should not come out of nowhere for you. We sing about this every season. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. If Advent is for all, then how does Advent affect racism. Instead of spending this season turning inward, primarily reflecting on our personal longings, let's turn outward and pursue the global longing of the gospel. Advent for all. So here's the plan. So you can know specifically exactly what we're going to do. I'm going to preach every other Sunday during this season. And my goal in the sermons that I will be delivering is to unpack what the Bible says about race and racism. My goal is not to unpack what the political left and right say. They don't own my voice and I will not give account to them. God owns my voice. I will give account to him. So I want to know what his word says, regardless of whose political affiliations it offends. Shades, here's the reality. Over the years, I've preached on this topic many times. And what's, what's been interesting to me is that the truth of this word hasn't changed over the years, but the responses of God's people to it have. A decade ago, sermons on the subject of racism got hearty amens from everyone that I knew. By 2016, sermons on that subject were met with questions and suspicion Post 2020, every pastor I know who tackles this topic is met with accusations. What changed? Not God's word, our world world has changed. It is ever-changing. in Shades, in the midst of an ever-changing world, we need the unchanging word to be our foundation about how we think about everything, including race. Shades, can you, if I was to ask you in conversation, can you tell me what the scripture says about race and racism? I'm not asking if you can give me the talking points of your political party. Can you give me the talking points of the Bible? That's what we need. That's what I'm aiming for us to start seeing today. And then again on December 11th, and then again on December 25th. Yes, we will have service on Christmas Day. We don't cancel service for Easter. We're not canceling service for Christmas. It's Jesus's birthday, people. Let's worship him. Anyway, sorry. On the other two Sundays of Advent, I've invited two of my friends and fellow pastors, uh, Isaac Adams, Thomas Wilder, who's preached here before. Uh, both of these men I highly respect, and they possess more wisdom than I ever will when it comes to this subject. And I've invited them to come and to give us practical application. Like, I don't want us to just stay up in the clouds theologically, I, I want us to bring these truths down to the ground into our everyday lives practically. So, That's the plan for this Advent series. Now, for the rest of this morning, I just want to begin. I want to begin to get a big picture, 10,000-foot view of this issue. I want to do that by beginning a journey through Scripture. It'll take all three sermons that I'm preaching to get through it. But I want to do this by beginning a journey through Scripture, a journey that's going to take us this morning from Genesis to Joppa so that we might see three big things. Giving you my outline for my note takers. Here it is. I want us to see how God created people to be. I want us to see how God calls his people to be. And I want us to see how the gospel changes everything. So first, number one, let's see how God created people to be. To see that, our journey begins in Genesis. Look at your Bibles, Genesis 1 and verse 27. So God created man, Adam. It's the Hebrew word for mankind. It doesn't just refer to Adam. It refers to all of mankind. And the way this verse ends is going to make sure we know that's true by saying, I'm not just talking about Adam, man. I'm talking about woman. I'm talking about mankind. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We gotta do a little groundwork before we can really dig into the application of what this means. Scripture teaches us that our God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three equally divine persons, one God, eternally existing in a perfect, loving unity. The Father selflessly loves and glorifies his Son. The Son selflessly loves and glorifies his Father they both do this in and through the Holy Spirit. Check this out, shades. Our triune God is simultaneously self-centered and selfless. <laughs> like like in other words, everything that the Father, Son, and Spirit do is lovingly for one another's glory. Selflessly for one another's glory. So all he does puts his divine glory, beauty, supremacy on display. And that's right, shades. It's right for God to be that way. It's right for him to hold up his supremacy in all things. For him to hold up anything else as supreme would be for him to lie to you and me. It's right for him to hold up his supremacy. It's not just right. It's good for him to hold up his supremacy in all things because nothing else will satisfy your heart like him. God loves you so much, he will give you nothing less than the best, and the best is himself. You don't want him to hold up anything else. He is the greatest thing. It is right and it is good that God is supreme. And I tell you all of that groundwork because we were made to reflect that reality. That's what we read in Genesis 127. We were made in the image of God. To image forth, that's what images do, the image. We were made to image forth what he is like to reflect his glory, his supremacy to fill the world with that for the good and the joy of all creation that's what god commands in the very next verse look at it genesis 128 and god blessed them and god said be fruitful and multiply fill the earth fill it with my image be my representative rulers, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, spread throughout the earth as my representative rulers, my image bearers, and fill it with my glory. This is how God created people to be, image bearers of his glory. That reality, Shades, brings into sharp relief several theological truths about race, positively, and about racism, negatively. First, positive truth about race. My, uh, my friend and fellow pastor, Isaac Adams, who's gonna come and preach next week, I, I have learned so much from him on what scripture has to say about this topic. And, and he, one of the things he says is he, he says, the Bible talks about race in three ways. Biologically, ethnically, and spiritually. And right here in Genesis, we're seeing the first one, biologically. The Bible declares that biologically, we all come from the same first parents. In other words, we are all part of one race, the human race. Now, that reality, I want to say this because a lot of people love to jump on that and harp on that as if to deny all other racial realities. That reality doesn't deny all the other racial realities that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But this is foundational. It means that we are all a part of the human race. We are all equal image bearers of God's glory. This is who God created all of us to be biologically. We don't just read this in the Old Testament. We read this in the New. The Apostle Paul agrees, Acts 17 and verse 26. And God made from one man every nation, ethnos is the Greek word. I'm going to say it a lot. Ethnicities. Don't think nation-states. Think peoples, people groups. Ethnicities with a shared ancestry and history and culture, often geography, sometimes political system. But Paul's saying from one man, God made every ethnicity, every imaginable people group on the face of the earth. God made from one man every ethnos of mankind to live on the face of the earth biologically there is one race the human race made in the image of god this is how god's this is how god created people to be equal image bearers of his glory but that reality that reality uh, brings into sharp relief not just theological truths about race positively. It also exposes theological truths about racism negatively. So second, negative truth about racism. The fact that we were created in the image of God means that we were created to resemble him, to represent him, to point to his supremacy in everything, But as we read from Genesis 1 on into Genesis 2 and 3, we see that instead of resembling and representing, we tried to replace him. Instead of pointing to his supremacy, we decided to promote our own. Genesis 3, Satan, the first supremacist, by the way. (laughs) Satan slithered into Eden to tempt our first parents, to follow in his supremacist path. Satan sought to put himself in the place of God, to see himself as supreme, and he tempts Adam and Eve to do the same thing. You'll read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, he says to them that if they will follow his lead, you will be like God. And we bit into that supremacist lie. That lie of supremacist ideology, which, watch this shades, which denies and inverts Trinitarian theology. This is why we covered all of that. It denies and inverts that in order to embrace idolatry by substituting oneself for God. This is why I prefer to refer not to supremacist ideology, but to supremacist idolatry. Because it denies Trinitarian theology by inverting it. It, did not, it says, you see what I'm saying? Trini- uh, supremacist idolatry says God is not supreme. It denies Trinitarian theology. And then it inverts it. It says, I'm supreme. And in doing so, it embraces idolatry of the self. It takes the same path as Satan." supremacist idolatry is satanic to its core and it doesn't just affect when we follow that path it doesn't just affect our relationship with God no in Genesis chapter 3 we see that it also affects our relationship with one another because we were made created to image forth God's supremacy together But when we invert that and make things all about our own supremacy, we're no longer working together for God's glory. We're competing with one another for our own. Do you see it? We see that unfold with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three, do we not? God confronts them, and Adam's like, Well, let me elevate me and downplay Eve. Her, her fault. Supremacist ideology breaks our relationship not only with God because we try to replace him, but with one another because now we are in competition. And supremacist idolatry will seize upon any difference it sees between you and me in order to promote my supremacy. It'll seize on age, it'll seize on gender, it'll seize on looks, class, career, money, success, education, and yes, ethnicity and race. Supremacist idolatry is the root of racism. It's at the root. And this will become one of the, racism will become one of the primary ways supremacist idolatry manifests itself throughout the rest of Scripture and throughout the rest of history, really. That's what I want us to to see as we continue our journey from Genesis to Joppa. Turn over to the book of Jonah. It's near the end of the Old Testament. For most of you, it's going to take up two pages in your Bible, maybe a little bit hard to find. It's in the Minor Prophets, right after Hosea. Turn over to Jonah where we see the second big thing this morning. Number two, we need to see how God calls his people to be. We've seen how he created people to be equal image bearers of his glory. Now we need to see how God calls his people to be. Jonah chapter one. Let's read verses one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, huge city in the Assyrian empire. Call out against it for their evil. They were violent. Their, Their empire was built on blood. Their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Found a ship going to Tarshish. He's never going to make it there. Spoiler. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So God calls Jonah to go northeast to Nineveh. Instead, he goes south to Joppa in order to sail west, like like he is running in the exact opposite direction. Why? You might say maybe because he's afraid. I mean, I just told you, Nineveh, part of the Assyrian empire known for violence and built on blood. Perhaps that freaks Jonah out. Perhaps it has him thinking back in his people's history. His people have a history. The Jews have a history of being Oppressed for ethnic reasons by empires. Just, just think of the place. Think of the place where they became an ethnos, where they became a people group, a, a nation. Where did that happen for them? Where did they grow into a, a nation? In Egypt. How did that go for them there? Acts seven seventeen summarizes it up pretty well says, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly. That's a kind way to put it. He dealt shrewdly with our race. Genos is the word. It's used all throughout the New Testament. It means people group. Right here, it refers to the, the Hebrews. My friend Isaac points out that this is the second way that the Bible talks about race, ethnically. It talks about it biologically, but also talks about it ethnically. That is, within the one human race, there are many races, many ethnicities. The word ethnicity, and the modern way we use the word race, not exactly the same. I told you before, ethnicity has to do with having a shared ancestry, shared history, and culture often a shared geography, at least at one point in time? When the Bible uses the word genos right here, race, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about ethnicity, which is not the same as the modern category of race. Most scholars agree that the modern category of race didn't really come into common usage until about the 17th century. And since that time, it's been used to identify groups of people or mark off groups of people based on physical appearance. The most obvious primary one, skin color. But but Shades, hear me. These words may be different, but the differences between the terms race and ethnicity does not mean, does not mean that what Scripture says about ethnic oppression has no application for modern-day racism. It doesn't mean that because the root of those sins is the same. Supremacist idolatry. You, You trace it throughout history, and the way that supremacist idolatry manifests itself morphs and changes. Whether we see it through ethnic oppression or through modern day racism. Since the garden, supremacist idolatry has always been finding a way. And it's finding a way right here in Acts 17, verse 19. Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. This is the ethnic oppression, the racism. I think we can completely and legitimately say that the Israelites experienced in Egypt. They were oppressed, subjugated, systematically killed their children for the sake of Egypt's supremacy. And he did it all on the basis of ethnicity. And we see that story play out again and again and again through scripture. Whether it's Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia, or Greece, or Rome. We see ethnicity-based oppression for the sake of satanic supremacy. Again and again and again. So, back to Jonah. Perhaps, perhaps this is why Jonah runs. Because he knows this history. And he's afraid. We might be tempted to think that if we were not explicitly told Otherwise. Jonah doesn't run because he's afraid, he runs because he's angry. Near the end of the book, after everything that happens in between, after God books a different boat for Jonah, big fish, gets him to Nineveh, Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents, Jonah's ticked. And we read this in Jonah 4 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? When I was back home, this is the reason I gave you. I don't want to come. Is this not what I said when I was back in my country? That is why, that's why I made haste to flee. For I that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's angry because he knows that God is gracious and Jonah doesn't think that Nineveh deserves grace. So he puts himself in God's place by running. This is his effort to get to decide what Nineveh gets. What he wants them to get is judgment. Jonah wanted to watch Nineveh burn because he felt superior. He was deserving of God's grace. Nineveh was not. Do you see how supremacist ideology perverts the very grace of God? That which should humble us to our knees. Supremacist ideology takes grace and uses it as a reason to puff ourselves up with pride. Shades, this right here in Jonah. I took us to Jonah specifically. There are a lot of places we could go. I took us to Jonah specifically because this is where we need to see that God's people are not immune to supremacist idolatry. This is God's prophet. God's people are not immune. that this, too, that truth, that God's people are not immune, we see that all throughout Scripture, and we see it all throughout history. We see it all throughout Scripture. God chose the Jews to set them apart as His people. but for what purpose? To be a light to the nations? Genesis 12 onward, in the first call of the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, God declares his purpose quite openly. I'm calling you. I'm setting you apart, Abraham, because through you, I want to bless all the families of the earth. He set apart this one ethnos in order to shine as a light to all ethnicities. But what we see happen as we read throughout Scripture, what we see happen again and again and again is that instead of God's people shining a light on God's supremacy, the nation of Israel turns inward and seeks their own. And they become the exact opposite of what God called them to be. They're filled with prideful supremacy instead of grace-induced humility. Humility a reason that God called them. He says so. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7. Go read it. God literally says to Israel, I did not choose you because you were a big strong nation. I chose you because you were small and weak. I graciously chose you to display my supremacy, not yours. Such grace should bring about humility. This is what God's, this is who God has called his people to be a people of humility who humbly take his grace to all peoples, all ethnicities. This is what the apostle Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 14. He says, I am indebted, I'm under obligation to the Greek and to the barbarian. That's Paul's way of saying to all other nations. Why are you under obligation, Paul? Because Paul sees God's grace was extended to me and I don't deserve it. And I need to—I—I I owe it to the world to extend that same grace to them. For I see myself as more undeserving than they. This is the effect of, of gospel grace on a, on a heart. This is who God calls his people to be. This is who God called Jonah to be. But Jonah runs. Did you notice, Jonah runs not away from Nineveh, but away from God. In his hardness of heart, Jonah is running from God's gracious heart. Twice, go back and read it. Twice in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we are told he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because God's heart is moving towards the nations. To run from the nations and other ethnicities is to run from God's heart shades. It is to run towards supremacist idolatry. Shades, this is very possible. This is very possible for God's people. This is where the end of the book of Jonah reveals that Jonah's heart is. Do you remember how the book ends? Jonah's sitting there wanting to watch Nineveh burn, himself burning up with the heat of the sun bearing down. And God graciously causes a plant to grow, give him some shade. And then God very hilariously sends a worm to eat and kill the plant. Jonah's ticked. He is angry over the death of a plant and over the lives of the Ninevites. Jonah would rather say plant lives matter than Ninevite lives matter. That's how hard his heart is, that he would rather have his shade than God's grace. That is the heart of supremacist idolatry, and it is very possible for God's people, which is why God himself aimed to kill it, and he aimed to kill its shades through Christmas with Advent for all. The coming of Christ himself. You won't go to the nations, Jonah? I will. Do it myself. Christ came for the nations. The gospel kills supremacist idolatry with a cross. This is the third big thing we need to see in our journey from Genesis to Joppa, and we see it in Acts chapter 10 flip over to Acts chapter 10. I really encourage you this afternoon to read all of Acts chapter 10. Read the whole story. I wish we had time to do that right now, but we gotta keep moving. Here we see big truth number three, how the gospel changes everything. We've seen how God created people to be, who he calls his people to be. Let's see how in spite of our failure to answer that call, the gospel changes Everything. In Acts chapter 10, we find the apostle Peter, our beloved hard-headed one, find him staying in a city by the sea. Anyone want to guess what city? I've only named one city, people, by the sea. Peter's in Joppa. Curious. the very city where God's prophet once ran to keep from proclaiming good news to the nations. I just find it interesting that Peter's in that city, on a rooftop, likely looking at the same sea, the same route of escape, when God calls him to proclaim good news to the nations. Peter's on that rooftop, and God gives him a vision of a a sheet, like a tablecloth, if you will, being lowered from heaven. And in it are all sorts of foods, both clean and unclean. In other words, things that the Jews were and were not allowed to eat. And God declares all of them clean. Eat up, Peter. You got to understand, Peter's scandalized at this moment. Food laws were a very serious thing. It was one of the identifying markers of God's people as the Jewish people. Food laws were simultaneously one of the primary dividing lines between Jews and Gentiles. The word Gentiles, every time you see that in your Bible, it's the Greek word ethnos, ethnicities, nations, people groups. These food laws are the primary dividing line between Jews and all other ethnicities, all other nations. And again, remember, when God gave his people things like these food laws, they were originally designed to set his people apart for the purpose of shining a light, shining a light to the nations. But instead, through sin, their hearts seized upon God's good word to use it for an evil purpose, to cut themselves off from the nations instead of shining a light to them, to Use, use these things as a way of seeing themselves as superior. And over the centuries, the Jews added a number of traditions to their laws, things that would safeguard them from interacting with unclean Gentiles whom they often called dogs. Here's Peter. Generations of prejudice built up in his blood. He's being told, Peter, Christ kept the law on your behalf. The food laws are fulfilled. The gospel declares all foods clean. So take and eat, Peter. Pretty soon, Peter will figure out what all of this really means. It is God's way of showing Peter, that the gospel has torn down the primary dividing wall between yourself and all other ethnicities. That wall has been blown to smithereens. And you, Peter, you are being called to live a life that's just like the food that you saw in the sheet, clean and unclean mixed, because there is no clean and unclean. The gospel has killed that. And Peter gets it. He gets, it takes him a while. God does this whole thing three times. Something about Peter needing three times. God does his whole thing three times and it takes him a couple of days of processing, but he gets it. I know that because he goes to the place that God called him to preach the gospel. He goes into the home of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. He goes into the home of Gentiles, something he would never do. And this is the first thing he says in his sermon. Acts 10 and verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, ethnos. Amongst every ethnicity, anyone who fears him, that worships him, and not just with lip service, but with life and does what is right, is acceptable to him. Peter says, I've seen I've seen that God shows no ethnic partiality. Theologian Ligan Duncan says that this is the closest thing we get in the Bible to a definition of racism. He puts it this way. He says, racism is the denial of the image of God and its implications to someone of another ethnicity. In other words, it's ethnic partiality. Racism in the church is a contradiction of the visible unity of all believers in Christ. We're going to see that as we keep reading about Peter right here in Acts. He's going to come to see Cornelius and all these Gentiles as his brother's fellow family. Racism is a contradiction to that reality. Ligan goes on. Racism inside and outside of the church is in contradiction to Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves. We saw that in Jonah, did we not? And it's in contradiction of God's creation of all people in his image. We saw that in Genesis. In in other words, ethnic partiality denies every truth that we have seen. This is how Ligan puts it. Theologically, Racism entails a denial of the biblical doctrines of creation, man, the, communions of, the communion of saints, and his disobedience to the moral law. We will not mince words. Racism is not only serious sin, it is heresy of the deepest dye. This is what Peter sees. And he sees God take a sledgehammer with the gospel to ethnic partiality that's what we're seeing right here in acts 10 34 we see god shows no ethnic partiality because the cross the cross shades the gospel it kills supremacist idolatry how does it do that the cross humbles us it won't allow us to see ourselves as supreme It humbles us, revealing that we are all sinners, all in need of the same Savior. And it reveals the glorious good news that he came for all of us so that we might be conformed to his image, the image that we were created to reflect in the first place. Shades, this is how the gospel changes everything by inverting supremacist idolatry. You see, the gospel Redeems things, flips them, reverses them, turns them back around. If supremacist idolatry elevates the self, the gospel humbles us. It won't allow us to embrace ourselves as supreme. It humbles us to embrace the only one who is supreme, Jesus. The gospel changes everything by inverting supremacist idolatry because the gospel redeems. Is that not what we see in our journey from Genesis to Joppa? From Genesis and seeing the way that God created things to be to our first stop in Joppa and seeing God's people abandon our calling. Like that's for the longest time. When I thought about Joppa, that's what I thought about. I thought about this is the place where God's people run from God. This is the place that stands symbolically for us abandoning our calling. I thought that until I saw in Acts 10 the gospel come along and redeem and reverse even Joppa so that now, I I don't associate Joppa with abandoning our calling, but with answering it. Shades, this is what we've seen, how the gospel changes everything by inverting supremacist idolatry, humbling us to embrace the only one who is supreme, Jesus. Shades, what does the, the gospel, what, what effect does the gospel or Advent have on racism, the coming of Christ for, for all? This thing we call Christmas, you want to know the effect it has? Christmas kills racism. Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's right, I said it, Christmas kills. You can quote me on that. Christmas kills because Christ came for a specific purpose, to kill, to crush the head of the serpent as he promised in order to bring true and real life. All the way back in Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15. We get what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first giving of the gospel, where God said that a seed would come from the woman, Christ, who would have his heel struck by the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent are all those who embrace supremacist idolatry, just like Satan himself. People like the Pharisees. Jesus said that pretty explicitly in John 8:44. He said, "You are of your father, the devil." And what did they do? They tried to strike at Jesus' heel through the cross. But that cross would become the very means by which he would crush Satan's serpent head in resurrection victory. And all who trust in him are adopted into his family, his people group, his race. My friend, Isaac Adams points out that this is the third way the Bible talks about race spiritually spiritually there are only two races the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman two races those who have satan as father and those who have god as father because they are connected to christ by faith listen to what peter peter who we've been reading about in acts 10 Listen to what he would later write about all those connected to Christ. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. That's one spiritual race and into his marvelous light. Peter writes that because he watched that happen. At the end of Acts chapter 10, you can read about it. While Peter is still preaching, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's from the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, the ethnos. So Peter says clearly, you keep reading it, Peter says clearly. Look, it's quite obvious. They've received the Holy Spirit. God has brought in these Gentiles, these ethnicities as his children. Who are we to stand in the way? Let's also receive them as our brothers and sisters through Baptism, because Peter now knew that in Christ, they, him, and these ethnics, they were one. Family, one people for God's own possession, one spiritual race in Christ, one spiritual race, comprised of all other races, all other ethnicities. Listen, when I talk about this being one spiritual race, I'm not, being one spiritual race in Christ does not eliminate our ethnic differences. Don't try to play the scriptures that way. They won't let you. It doesn't eliminate our ethnic differences. It celebrates them as a multicolor manifestation of the, The glory of God. In other words, another way to say this, Shades, is being in Christ doesn't make us colorblind. Like, let's just quit talking about this, and it'll go away. Being in Christ doesn't make us colorblind. What it does is it makes us a colorful choir in which every ethnicity with all of our diversity are united by one song that we will sing as one spiritual family for all eternity. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every ethnos, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. That doesn't make this picture less beautiful, it makes it more beautiful. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Shades, you don't know this song. You better learn it because you are going to sing it. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One last time, one last time, let me quote my friend Isaac Adams. He says, if this is what heaven looks like, then it's no wonder racism looks so much like hell. boy can preach. Buckle up. He's here next week. (laughs) Shades, this is new creation, and it is colorful. New creation is a colorful choir united in one song of salvation to the Lamb. Because Revelation 5.9 says that lamb, Jesus, was slain and by his blood he ransomed a people for God. He ransomed one race, his spiritual race, a people for God, from every race, from every tribe and language and people and ethnos. Jesus himself says that's why he came. That's what his advent was all about. Matthew 20 and verse 28, Jesus declares, he came to give his life as a ransom for many from every ethnicity. That's why he came, advent for all. So, Shades, until the second advent of Christ, when he comes again to bring to completion what his first advent began, to, to fully and finally do away, with racism and let loose the final course of this multicolored choir. Until that day, may we seek to begin singing this song of salvation. And one of the ways is by fighting racism. Not just not committing it, fighting And there are lots of practical things that looks like, which we will talk about in the coming weeks. I just want to close by offering you three really basic things, super basic in light of all that we have seen. They are praise, pursue, and proclaim. First, praise, in light of what we've seen in Genesis. Praise the Lord that all people are made in his image. Thank him for the beauty of his multicolored creation. Give him praise that in the faces of your neighbors who are fearfully and wonderfully made, you get greater glimpses of his glory. Don't deny yourself that joy. Worship in this way. See if it doesn't transform your heart. Second, pursue. In light of what we've seen in Jonah, don't run from, but pursue people of all ethnicities with the passion of the Lord. That's where his heart is. In our modern context shades, this pursuit, it includes not buying into overly simplistic explanations of racism. This pursuit includes not buying into overly simplistic solutions to racism. This pursuit means entering into the complexities of our history in this country, of our history as a part of God's Church. It includes entering into the complexities of people's lives, pursuing them, listening, learning, lamenting, loving. Pursue. And third, proclaim. In light of what we have seen in Acts, may we proclaim the gospel to all peoples. For this is how the gospel got to us. I'm pretty sure that everybody in here is a Gentile. If you're Jewish, you can let me know afterwards. Paul would say, that's of no advantage to you, just like me being a Gentile is of no advantage to me. Not before the throne of God. Pretty sure we're all Gentiles in this room. So if there is no gospel for Gentiles, then there is no gospel for you. But if there is a gospel for Gentiles, then not only is there a gospel for you, there's a gospel for every gentile, every ethnos, every nation, and it's the same gospel and we are commanded to proclaim it. Matthew 28:19 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, ethnos, ethnicities, shades, shades. Praise, pursue, proclaim the reason that Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many from every ethnicity so that his multicolored choir might sing the praises of his supremacy and no one else's. Shades, so my prayer is that this Christmas we may be equipped, equipped to kill racism in us, around us, as Christmas itself roots us in the reality of Advent for all. Let's pray, Father. Your truth is beautiful, glorious, and good. There is no other foundation in this world for the equal dignity and humanity of all people than us being created in your image. No other foundation. And Father, I pray that in our lives as we look at these truths that every last implication of them would play itself out. May these truths start a train of dominoes in our lives. May all of these implications play out in every one of us until the last domino falls. Make us a people who are joyful in your supremacy over all peoples. Make us a people who praise you, who pursue all peoples, and proclaim your gospel to all peoples. Make us a people that look like Revelation 7. We pray these things in the name of the Lamb who bought us by his blood.